This is Minds Worth Meeting from Stern Strategy Group, a podcast where we talk with some of the top thought leaders in the world, from business leaders and technology analysts. The way we interact with devices and our technologies is, is becoming conversational. It's becoming perceptual. It's becoming relational. To academics and researchers. There's nothing inherently good or bad about influence. Manipulative people can use influence. And great people with great ideas can use influence. And it's similar skills that we need to make the things happen and bring people on board. We welcome a new Mind Worth meeting in each episode. Here you'll find accessible, down-to-earth conversations about some of the most important topics of the day with the experts and leaders who are the top authorities in their fields. And now, here's Mind's Worth meeting. I'm Whitney Jennings, and you're listening to Minds Worth Meeting. And I'm Justin Lewis from the Stern Speakers and Advisors team. So, Whitney, we've got a really interesting guest today. Tell me about her and uh, what we're going to hear. Our fabulous guest today is Columbia Business School professor Sheena Iyengar. She is a global authority on choice and decision making who leverages neurological and cognitive science to generate innovation in a whole new way that we've really never seen before. She's been named a Thinkers 50 top business thinker twice, and she's the author of the highly acclaimed book, The Art of Choosing, as well as the brand new book, Think Bigger, How to Innovate. So that's what we're really talking about today. And we just had her in the office uh, about a week ago, and it was, I would say, one of the most interesting meetings we've had. And she's one of these people that you can tell knows her stuff. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating is she is really an expert in the field. And you know it, you can tell. I literally took seven pages of notes when she was in the office last week. There was just so much to capture and learn from her. And I can't wait for our listeners to also learn how to innovate better. And they will learn right now. Here's Sheena. Welcome everyone to another episode of Minds Worth Meeting. We have a special treat today. Our guest is Columbia Business School professor and author of The Art of Choosing and the new book, Think Bigger, How to Innovate, Professor Sheena Iyengar. Sheena, welcome to Minds Worth Meeting. Thank you for having me. So we've got a lot to unpack with these two books. Let's start with telling our audience who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Wow, who am I? That's a big <laughs> question. So I am a professor at the Columbia Business School. I teach a course called Think Bigger, which is the title of my latest book. And I have been at the Columbia Business School since 1998. And where are you from? I'm of Indian heritage. I was born in Toronto, I like to say by accident. <laughs> Uh, but I grew up really in New York. My parents arrived here when I was two, so I don't really remember Toronto. So I grew up in Queens, and then I grew up in New Jersey. From 10 until 17, I lived in Elmwood Park in Bergen County, New Jersey. Well, it's always nice to have another Jersey girl in the uh, virtual house. <laughs> and so in 1998, after finishing all my undergrad and my graduate and a little stint at MIT, I came back to New York. And this is where I live. So uh, your TED Talk, which has over 4 million views just on the TED website alone and millions elsewhere, it's a testament to the intrigue and the, the importance of your work. The TED Talk was on the art of choosing your first book. What led you to question and study choice? 
my um, personal experiences that probably got me very interested in choice um, is that first off, I am blind. I was born with a rare form of retinitis pigmentosa, so I went blind at a very young age. And I'm also Indian American that grew up in a very traditional household, but went to you know normal schools in the U.S. So growing up, I did struggle a lot with the narrative around choice, right? Because the American dream was that you could do and be whatever it is you wanted to be. Uh, but here I was, this girl growing up blind, and the most common conversation that I was confronting is, what choices did I have? And so everywhere I went, there were always questions about what would I be able to do? Could I read? Could I learn to write? Could I do math? Could I go to normal school? How was I going to get around? Was I going to have friends? I mean, the questions seemed endless. And so they all boiled down to what choices would I have? And so for me, at a very early age, I'm starting to think about, well, what choices could I have? And maybe people were wrong. And maybe I did have more choices than they thought possible. Or maybe there were some choices I could create. So I think that was certainly something that informed my interest and study of choice. And the other thing that informed my interest in study of choice was the fact that I uh, was growing up in a sense with two cultures and two entirely different narratives about choice. Mm -hmm. um, as a Sikh person, I was growing up with the idea that the ability to choose wasn't something that you thought was positive or glorious. It actually came with it a lot of responsibility. And that first and foremost, that you as a Sikh person had to think about your duties and responsibilities, that you didn't just run to choice. That was considered almost naive. Right. And yet as an American in school, I was, you know, told, you know, this is my birthright. The pinnacle of life was me getting to choose who I was and what was I going to be. And so it seemed like there were two entirely different perspectives on how you were supposed to make the big decisions that would end up shaping your life. In Indian culture, they believed in arranged marriage. In American culture, they believed in love marriage. Right. In Indian culture, your career was sort of chosen for you by your parents or people that knew better. Um, and in American culture, you got to make such decisions. So I think it was the opposing narratives plus me being blind and being juxtaposed against a culture that really glorified choice that I began to ask maybe questions that other people had not asked before in science about, well, what exactly is choice? How much of the desire for choice is innate? How much of it is biological versus cultural? What does choice actually give you as a tool? How do you get the most from this thing called choice? What would you say are kind of the conclusions that you've come to? Is it cultural? Is it biological? I think we all share an innate desire to exercise some amount of agency over our immediate environment, right? There's no human being, no matter where on the planet. In fact, there's no animal, no matter where on the planet, that would welcome the opportunity to be locked up behind bars, Right? We, we don't like that. Right. We all react negatively when a choice that we've gotten used to is taken away from us. So those are things that are clearly shared. Everything else about choice, like how many choices you should have, what constitutes a good and bad choice, how choices should be made, who's in the position to make a choice, this is all cultural. These are things you're taught from very early on, both implicitly and explicitly as you're growing 
growing up by school, by your parents, by the news, by your political leaders, etc. Right. So your new book, Think Bigger, is already receiving positive reviews. You've said that Think Bigger is a continuation of the art of choosing. So what role does choice play in innovation and creative thinking? Huge. I think until now, we have always assumed almost implicitly that choice belongs in one bucket and innovation is a totally different bucket. And that's because there were scientists from totally different disciplines that studied those two things and so they never came together. But in fact, every innovation is just a new combination of existing options. That's what you're always doing. And so The Art of Choosing was really a book that described for people what dilemmas we have mm-hmm. in as modern day choosers when we go out into the world and have to make difficult choices, essentially. What are the challenges we have when we engage in the picking and finding exercise, which is clearly a very big part of what it means to choose. But Think Bigger goes to the next step and it says, what if the choice isn't out there? What if it's not there? Which often, if you think about the everyday decisions in our life, the most readily available solution is not that readily available to whatever problem we're confronting. And so how do you create those meaningful solutions? So Think Bigger is really about how you use your minds to create new choices. I love the various stories that you told throughout the book about the different combinations that from artists to NASA scientists, engineers use to solve problems. And that seemed to be the core of innovation is coming up with new combinations to solve problems that would be useful to people. Um, Indra Nooyi, former CEO and chair of PepsiCo, said that Think Bigger was simply brilliant, at last a method to take us to the frontier of new ideas and beyond. So my question to you is, can you tell us about the Think Bigger method? How does this work? So in the book, what I do is I give people a six-step method by which they can take any challenge that they have, and it could be a challenge as big as what should be my new career move or could be a challenge of like, how do I take care of this problem that I'm having at work? And it essentially gives you a six-step method that you can use to solve any problem and come up with a solution. And while on the face of it, six steps might sound like a lot, it's just like learning a new gym routine. Once you learn it, you get better and better and better with practice. As far as the application of it, how do you see that working in our daily lives? For example, you mentioned choosing our careers. How do we apply it to which job do I take? Mm -hmm. Which path do I go down for my career? So what it does is it gives you essentially a structured way of going about answering that question. So traditionally, when we have that problem, like what should I do with my next job? What do we tend to do? We will go to a retreat or take a lot of long walks or maybe go climb a mountain and hope that somehow with a lot of reflection, it'll come to us. Or we'll ask people that know us or have a quick brainstorm with people. All of those assume that coming up with new ideas happens organically and that you don't really have a whole lot of control over it. But what Think Bigger shows you is that, in fact, you can control the ideation process. And it doesn't have to be beyond your reach and you don't have to wait for it to arrive as if it was magic. And so the tool that is part of the Think Bigger method is something I call the choice map. Mm -hmm. Let's say I'm trying to figure out what should be my career and 
I'm an undergrad in college and I'm saying, so how do I figure out what's my career? That would be the problem I'm trying to solve. And notice how I phrased it as a question because in Think Bigger, you always phrase things as a question so that maintains an open mind. And then you identify what are your biggest questions underlying that that you need to answer. Like, why is it hard for you to figure out? How should I figure out what's going to be my career preferences? One sub problem might be, you know, how do I figure out what I'm good at? How do I figure out what I like? Um, say that would be the second one. How do I figure out what potential options exist that go beyond what career services has on offer? Say, for example, those are three parts to the answer to my larger question. And so you break it down. And then what you do is you start to ask yourself, well, how has this problem been solved for each of those sub-problems? How has this problem been solved in my industry, meaning how have other people gone about figuring out, you know, what are they good at? Mm -hmm. Have other people figured out what their interests are and who's done that well? So what are the best practices? But then I look at how have people done this kind of thing in all different other arenas? Because it's not just college people that have this problem. Lots of people have this kind of problem and how do they solve it? And so I ask people to go and search far and wide for solutions that are often in totally other industries so that they can find a toolkit of different choices or options that they can then use. Once you've collected up different options, you can now ask yourself, well, given all this, how can I imagine combining these options to create an interesting new path for myself? Mm-hmm. How do we avoid identifying the wrong problem? Ah, oh, well, that's a biggie. Mm-hmm. I think that most people end up solving the wrong problem. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you look at many companies, about 72% of their strategic vision teams tend to fail because they've solved for the wrong problem. They've come up with a solution that doesn't solve for the problem that's the one that really they should have solved for and they only discover it later on once they've come up with a solution and then they discover nobody wants to implement it. There's different tactics. First off, it's very, very important to not assume the problem you want to solve is self-evident. Mm-hmm. It never is. No two people see that problem in the same way, even if they supposedly have the same experience. So you really need to have that discussion where you're getting from people to talk about what are the reasons why we haven't reached our numbers this year? What are the reasons why uh, we're not being able to hire all the people that we want to hire, for example? What are the reasons why the different parts of my company don't talk to each other? Uh, What are the reasons why it's difficult to create really good digital communication systems across the various parts of my institution, to just name a few problems. Mm-hmm. Different people will have very different understandings of what are the causes of that problem. And the first and foremost thing to do, as painful as it might seem, as tedious and feels unproductive to just surface all the reasons. And yet it's only when you surface all the reasons, it's only then that you're really able to see, okay, what are the big buckets? What are the big categories? Categories. And now you can say, okay, fundamentally, we have, let's say, these, in my experience, it's usually somewhere between three to six big challenges that they have. A lot of stuff is noise or littler stuff. Usually it boils down to somewhere between three to six different buckets. That's actually the process you want to go through to figure out what those are. Sometimes you're in an organization where there really isn't a lot of communication and there's a lot of hesitance around communicating. Mm-hmm. 
And for that, I have designed, um, and this isn't in the book, this is actually something I do both in my class as well as for different corporate retreats, is I do something that I call the innovation marketplace. Okay. It's very simple, and yet it's very powerful. And so what you do, say a senior executive, is you have everybody on a piece of paper, and you can do this with a group of somewhere between like 50 and 100 people. What you do is you have them write down one, like you can ask them, say, look, if I wanted to make a really big difference, say as a senior person, you pick the problem you want to solve. Mm-hmm. I want to really if, uh, increase growth by uh, some percentage, or I really want to create better communications, whatever it might be. Can you write down on a piece of paper one problem, which if it was solved, you think would make a really big difference. And, you know, you could do one solution, but the problem with solutions is then people might rally around a solution that might be premature. Mm -hmm. And so I usually prefer if people do a problem. And so what you then do, and you actually can make this a lot of fun. So you now then give everybody in their room checks, like fake checks. I don't know, like $500,000, a million, and five million. Okay. Monopoly money checks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, monopoly money checks. You do whatever denomination you want, but you see, you have to have a hierarchy. Okay. And now each person has to go around the room, and I would not have them announce it out loud to the whole group in one shot. Do not be efficient about it. It has to be a networking exercise. So Whitney comes to Sheena and says, "Here's the problem I'm thinking." And Sheena tells Whitney, and then we go to then I go to Sarah, and Whitney goes to John, and John goes to Sarah. So every Every single person goes to every other person, and you go in pairs. Mm -hmm. In each pair, the person describes what they think is the problem, and they don't stand around and discuss or say, oh, you're wrong. That's not the point of the exercise. You're just learning from each other. Okay. And then at the end, each person invests their three checks in whichever three problems they would invest in, they would like to work on, and it can't be their own. Okay. And what that does is now the senior executive sees where there's the most energy. You see where what are the, say, in a group of 100, you're going to have roughly, I don't know, between 10 to 15 that will get the most investment. Okay. And now you can start to bucket those and see, okay, what are people seeing and where's the energy for creating change? It's a fun way to get people communicating and learning. Yeah. So in organizations, we have a problem and then we sit around a table and and we say, let's brainstorm about how to solve yeah. this problem. In your book, you talk about kind of the pitfalls of brainstorm, the limitations of it. Instead of brainstorming, what should we be doing? Is it this process that you just described? Is that the alternative? Yeah. So choice mapping is the alternative to brainstorming. The problem with brainstorming is it's exactly what you described. I say the problem and everyone just starts throwing out ideas. Mm-hmm. And they start throwing out ideas prematurely. You know, you could just throw out anything and you're confounding the idea with what actually exists in the world. So you don't make a differentiation between those two. And so as a result, you don't know what's actually new, meaning untried, versus what's already been done. That's another problem that happens, which you 
don't want. Because remember, when you have a new solution, you want to try to increase the odds that it might work. Right. And so that the more you're able to build on stuff that's already happened in the past, the more likely you are to have evidence as to what does work and what doesn't work. Another thing that happens in brainstorming is it's not really a great way to surface diversity of thought because whoever talks first, essentially that sets the tone because everybody's going to build on that person and they're anchored on that idea. And so everybody's mind goes in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. In general, even if you don't want to do choice mapping, doing the simple thing of having people first think by themselves Mm -hmm. about what's causing the problem and what might be some solutions that you know work. If you just do that simple act and have each person think about it by themselves and then share rather than brainstorm, share their thoughts that in itself will increase the quantity of ideas by about three times as well as the diversity. Such a small thing to change about how we form new ideas. Think about it solo and then share those ideas with the group. It's also a great way to get I mean, we talk about how to leverage diversity mm-hmm. and diversity increases quality, but you're not going to actually get any benefits of diversity if you do a traditional brainstorming because a lot of people, they either say yes or they don't talk because mm-hmm. no one wants to say the odd thing. Right. So the book, you gave us so many examples of innovators. Do you have a favorite innovation story that you researched and were able to fit into the book? Oh, gosh. A favorite innovation story. Well, I love Lady Liberty, right? Because mm-hmm. she's just inspiring for me. Maybe it's just my immigrant heart, but I always love Lady Liberty. I guess that is one of my most favorites. It's hard to compete with Lady Liberty. Yeah. At once, she's just a statue. Unto herself, she stands for really nothing. And yet, what's powerful about her is that she is just a combination of things that Bartholdi had available to him in his time. Mm-hmm. And he combined interesting pieces together like you know the face of his mother plus he got the pose from a very famous painting at the time uh, Lady of Truth La Verite the coin the coin which was uh, so the crown that was on the five franc coin and then he just copied the sort of size and general aura of it from the great uh, sculptures that were guarding the Egyptian tombs so once you know you say look he just slapped together things that were familiar to him and he made a sculpture And yet, she's so much more than that. She's such an example of what is a big idea. And what's a big idea is that she comes to mean something that goes beyond what the innovator perhaps even imagined. But because he built her in a way that inspired people, you know, Emma Lazarus comes along, she writes a poem that becomes famous, The Great Colossus. And, you know, she writes of freedom as seen through the eyes of an immigrant. And then And, you know, even she doesn't make it a big idea. Then comes along the great niece of Alexander Hamilton, who finds the poem in some bookstore collecting dust. And then she's like, oh, this should be on the pedestal. And then little by little, it's the ships that come through the harbor of New York. It's the movie. It's like she's come to mean something to each and every single individual that beholds her. Wonderful. So according to your research, when creating a suite of products, or services to offer in the market. What's the optimal number of options to offer a customer to maximize their likelihood of hitting that purchase button, so to speak? Is there such thing as too many choices? I've studied
argued that for a very long time. Um, we know that too many choices is overwhelming for people, and then they you know either give up or choose the default in some way or choose suboptimally. In general, what we know is that it's optimal for people to be aware of somewhere between seven plus or two minus choices. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that as a retailer, you only offer between five and nine options because... I can also, you can handle a lot more categories. Mm. And so let's say I'm a retailer, I can give you different categories, say of ice cream or shoes or clothing, et cetera. It's just that again, per category, you want to make it roughly somewhere between five and seven, just because cognitively that's when we are most able to not just keep track, but also differentiate. Mm -hmm. Now, it is really important as a retailer to not only limit the number of choices per category, but really make sure that the differences are clear. When people can't tell them apart, that's when they essentially get nervous about making a choice. Okay. I love online shopping but some retailers just have so many options. I just have to shut down, <laughs> shut down, shut down the site because there's way too many options to be sifting through and, and poking around through. So I, I totally relate to that. So what has to happen with, I mean, that's a great example, right? If you know exactly what you're looking for, mm-hmm. then great. You just go there and you just search. Where it becomes a problem is when you don't know what you're looking for, in which case the display, the way they're categorized, and organized is what really makes a difference in terms of your experience. In fact, when I teach people how to innovate mm-hmm. in the Think Bigger process, I keep in mind, you know, our cognitive limitations so that notice how when I was talking about breaking down a problem, I very much stuck to, you know, essentially in that seven plus or minus two. Mm-hmm. Even when I have people go into different industries to identify different potential solutions to different problems that they have, I again stick within that range, seven plus or minus two. Up front, that might sound like I'm constraining you, but I'm actually giving you more choice. Mm. I'm actually empowering you by putting those constraints up front. I'm actually enabling you to create many, many, many more solutions than you would through any other method. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I think you mentioned something like over 3000 options could be created from using your method. Yeah. A typical choice map, right? which is a five by five. You can generate at least 3,125 unique solutions. That's amazing. And the fact that your framework will then help you narrow down which of those solutions would be best to solve that problem, that's going to be revolutionary for how we think about creating new ideas. It's helpful for how you create new ideas. It's helpful for figuring out how to reduce your choice set Mm. so that you can better see which is the more dominating alternative. It's helpful as a way to evaluate new choices. So think of it as a problem-solving tool. Mm -hmm. So one of my last questions for you, given all the work that you've done, all the research that you've done as a professor, what's a question that people never ask you about your work that you wish they would ask you? Hmm. That they never ask me, that I wish they would ask me, huh? I suppose it's what was my favorite choice that I created. Okay. And my 
might be one question that I, I am trying to remember if anyone's ever asked me that. Well, I'll ask you, what was your favorite choice that you've created? My favorite choice was my choice to study choice. Ah. But I'll let you pick any other question you want to ask me. No, I'm usually very open. That's, that's good. That's good. It's fascinating, the choices that we make uh, based on our experiences. And I'm sure your upbringing led you to create and make the choices that you've made in life and led you to write these very fascinating, helpful books. So it sounds like you're making all the right choices, or at least most of them. My best choice was the choice to study choice. I've certainly made mistakes <laughs> in, uh, in some of the choices I've made in life, but I would say that one choice was the best, and I'm very happy that I made it. Wonderful. So um, we're, we're going to wrap up our time here, but before we do, we like to do a little lightning round, and I'm just going to ask you three questions. Give us the first thing that comes to mind, rapid fire, as rapid fire as we can. Mm-hmm. Okay. So first question is, who's been the most influential person in your life? Uh, my advisor, Mark Lepper. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very influential in forming my thinking. Um, yeah, I'd say Mark Lepper. I owe him a lot. Okay. Secondly, what's the best piece of advice someone ever gave you? So maybe Mark or someone else, what's the best piece of advice you've been given? Actually, yeah, it was one of my very first employees. And she said, you know, I know you're really, really smart and you'll be surrounded by a lot of smart people, but what's really important is to make sure you find people that are nice. Mm. Has that been easy or difficult, you think? I think sometimes it's not always easy to know who's truly nice, and I have come to realize that there was a lot of wisdom mm-hmm. in that saying. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And mm-hmm. lastly, what life advice would you give to young people today? You have the pleasure of uh, cultivating the minds of tomorrow. What advice do you give to them? My big biggest takeaway is that, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming at you every single day. A lot of information, a lot of choices, a lot of opportunities. Every morning you should wake up and ask yourself, what's the one thing that's really important to do today? And so it's be choosy about choosing. Don't make every choice. It's not worth it. Be choosy about choosing. I love it. Thank you, Sheena, so much for joining us and helping us think bigger. This has been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Whitney, and thank you so much, Sheena. You can learn more at her website, SheenaIanger.com. That's S-H-E-E-N-A-I-Y-E-N-G-A-R.com. Her new book, Think Bigger, How to Innovate, is at ThinkBiggerInnovation.com. Now to tell you about our next episode, here's Kenny Conrad from the Stern PR and Executive Visibility Team. Thanks, Justin. On the next episode of Minds Worth Meeting, I'll sit down with Dr. Narit Pisano, a licensed clinical psychologist who is now putting her skills and knowledge to the test as the chief psychology officer at Cognovi Labs, a psychology-infused emotion AI platform. In her role at Cognovi, Dr. Pisano uses her years of experience to help train the emotion AI software, helping it identify and analyze various emotions in written text. As a result of her work, Cognovi's AI has helped marketers increase sales, call centers increase effectiveness, and medication companies increase prescription fulfillment rates, which ultimately saves lives. That's all in our next episode of Minds Worth Meeting. We hope you'll join us. Minds Worth Meeting is a production of Stern Strategy Group. 
Our hosts are Kenny Conrad, Whitney Jennings, and Justin Lewis. Alan Halimski is our video editor. The production team includes Alyssa Bauer, Kaylee Heverin, and Meg Virig. Whitney Jennings is Stern Speakers and Advisors Marketing Manager, and Brandon Pantano is our Digital Marketing Director. Join us next time for another episode of Stern Strategy Group's Minds Worth Meeting, streaming on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.